Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, supported by DownloadTennis.com. On today's book club... We chat with Christopher Clary about his new book, The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Book Club with Joel flying solo from Passing Shot HQ. This week, I am excited to welcome onto the show New York Times tennis correspondent Christopher Clary to talk about his fantastic new book, The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come onto the show. Um, how are you doing today? Hey, it's great to be with you. I am doing great. I really enjoyed this this uh, rollout process of this book. <laughs> this is my first major book, and I'm getting to talk to tennis aficionados and tennis nerds, like people like me all over, all over the world, really. It's been fantastic, and I've really been enjoying the first couple of days, and there's been some great responses. So, so far, so good. I mean, it's a really exciting time at the moment because the book now is out, isn't it? It came out a few days ago. Um, it is out in the open. What's the What's been like the immediate reaction like? Plus well, the thing, I mean, it, there's that feeling of you've kind of made this baby, if if you will, and you're putting it out there to get the baby tattooed, or I don't, I don't know what's going to happen to it. So you're you're feeling a little vulnerable, I have to confess. But you're, I think the the, the overall feeling has been very supportive. You know, you're going to get some uh, reviews that you don't get, or you're a little negative. It's just part of the game, I'm afraid. And it's good to get reviewed. It's good to get people's feedback because you want that people to respond to the to the work. And of course, it's a long book, as you may have noticed. It's over 400 pages. I'm getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know hassling about that. You know, couldn't you have written a little shorter and you know reined it in a bit? And people keep saying that 400 pages. When I finished it in 2030, I heard somebody say that I'll, I'll be happy to get back to you about it. So yeah, I was wondering if I was going to be able to finish uh, John Isner versus Nicola Mahu before uh, finishing the book. Ah, uh, there you go. I like that. One. That's a good line. I'll put that on the list. But no, it's just I just think the reaction in general, I have to say, has been really. Uh, to me, reassuringly and a little bit surprisingly, really positive. People have been, I have some people I really respect that reached out and said, hey, I think you did a good job. And that, that means a lot. And just for our, our listeners who might not be uh, aware of, of who you are and, and kind of what you do and, and kind of your background, um, because I understand this is sort of your, you know, your your passion project. You've, you've, it's been a long time in the making, kind of making this book. Could you just give us our listeners a bit of a background in terms of, um, you know, what you've done in kind of the, the tennis world, what you do, and really one of what, what led you to putting this book together? Well, my byline, you know, for over 30 years has been Christopher Clary, but all my friends call me Chris pretty much. I have been covering sports pretty much my entire professional life, uh, career. When I finished college, I, I was a college tennis player in the U.S., Division Three, so no scholarship for me. And I played junior tennis my whole life. I was in a tennis family, and my dad was in the Navy, so we moved around all over the place in the U.S. I played junior tennis in uh, California and in Hawaii, and I played, obviously, collegiate tennis. When I finished college, I went for a year of traveling. I saved my money as a tennis coach for the summer out in East Hampton, New York and Long Island, and probably made more per hour that summer than I've made, you know, any time since in my career. And that was <laughs> that was enough to pay for me to travel for almost nine or 10 months back in 1986 and 87. So I went all over the place, carrying my tennis racket with me, and though I very rarely got to use it, but it was a good security blanket. I write about that in the book. And that's kind of, you know, I, I just always have been passionate about uh, sports, I used to hang out in the library in the days before the internet and read all the old Sports Illustrated magazines, which was kind of my gateway to uh, good sports writing. And I love watching sport, knew all the statistics for all the major sports in America. But I really got turned on as a career, I think, um, on sports when I realized how global it was. I grew up watching the Olympics. I grew up watching Grand Slam tennis. But then I started to travel. My wife is French, fell in love with a Parisian, and I ended up moving to Europe. And spent 13, 14 years living full-time in France and Spain 
And that's when things just, I realized I could do this for my whole life and my whole career. And it's been a dream of mine to write a book since I was in my teens, to be honest. And I've written a few before, but they weren't you know, full-blown projects like this where you really put yourself on the line. And I realized, and I was talking to you about this before a little bit off camera, I mean, it's, um, or off air, it's, some people are able in my business to have their full-time job and somehow write a book on the side. I am not that person. <laughs> I wish I had that kind of uh, time management skill. I need to take my full focus and put it on the book. And so I basically, I managed to research uh, for the book, The Master, with my free time and my days off and my vacation time. But the actual writing, I knew I had to be away from my regular job. There just too many things that could come up. So I took a leave from the New York Times, actually during the pandemic, um, and it ended up uh, giving me about five months to write. And frankly, I thought that was going to be loads of time, loads of runway, but it actually was barely enough. And I, I realized, you know, this is the most challenging thing I've done in my career. And I've covered all kinds of sports, all kinds of big events, but this was by far the most challenging and I would say so far rewarding thing that I've done. And it's, uh, it's out there. The baby's there to be tattooed. So go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I think mean, receiving the book and, and reading it, I think what's fascinating about it is how in depth it is and how many different, I think, angles and kind of perspectives in there. I know, you know, the, the book is certainly based on kind of your experiences, you know, with Roger Federer, but there's also lots of different other kind of perspectives in there in terms of, you know, other players and from his kind of personal life as, as well. What just just very quickly before we get into some of the, the kind of the subjects and the topics, what was the sort of research kind of process you went through in terms of covering all those different aspects to kind of form this this picture of Roger Federer? Well, the, the starting point for me was that I wanted to be kind of a summation of my experience covering Roger for 20 plus years and sort of weave all that together and use all these interviews. I've interviewed him more than 20 times exclusively in many different places and many different forms of transport over the years. <laughs> and um, it's been a very rich experience. And I've also obviously interviewed a lot of people that are in his team, almost everybody over the, over the years and done stories about them. And, and I, I know most of his rivals as a journalist quite well too. And I decided that that was great, but to make it interesting for me and hopefully more interesting for the reader and to make it into a project that I felt had this contemporary feeling to it, I needed to sort of not start over, but really start again in some ways and try to uh, interview as many people as I could in real time now mm. for the book. So I went back and interviewed um, over 80 people, as it turned out, for the book. Um, people, everybody from his sports psychologist, Christian Marcoli, to uh, the guy who runs the tennis club in Switzerland where he sometimes trains in the mountains, to obviously Paul Anacone and Peter Lundgren and former coaches of Rogers, And really, in a lot of ways, most interestingly, uh, his former rivals, people like Andy Roddick, for example, or Murat Safin who were just terrific and very giving of their time. And then also I had a chance to speak with Novak Djokovic for the book and Rafael Nadal as well as part of bigger interviews. And it was, um, it was really rich and very good. And then I suddenly was faced with this mountain of material, 80 plus interviews now, plus hundreds, maybe even thousands of interviews over the years in the past. So the challenge was how to marshal all this information, how to make the best sense of it. And most importantly, as you know, from doing these sorts of conversations, the best structure out of it mm. that was really tricky to figure out the right approach. I ultimately determined it needed to be semi-chronological just to kind of have flow. But above all, I decided because Roger is so global, tennis players are global. Roger is particularly global and really embraces that part of his existence. I thought the best way to organize it was around the places that I had met him or that he had meant a lot to him through the years that were really mm. the key places in his career. And that was great in terms of theory but the problem with that, as you can imagine, is if you're writing about Wimbledon early in the book, which you would have to do because it was a pivotal place for him very early on where he won his first Grand Slam title and his Wimbledon junior title and all that, beat Pete Sampras in 2001. Once you've done that chapter on Wimbledon, he played Wimbledon, you know, <laughs> almost 20 more <laughs> times. Mm. So how do you get back to that stuff and weave it in to the narrative? Um, you've already dealt with Wimbledon as a place in his timeline. And that, to me, was the hardest structural challenge. We want to get into the, you know, really the engine room of the writing. And I, to be honest with you, I was really pulling my hair out, what's left of it, uh, a number of times over that aspect of it. And I hope I solved it. And I really tried in some ways, some things are really not dealt with in great detail, like Andy Murray and Rogers final in 2012 and the Olympics that year. That kind of because of all the Wimbledon early, that didn't get the full treatment. 
but I think I, in my to my satisfaction, found the right tone and approach. Yeah, I think you know, just kind of looking at it, I think what's really nice about it as a as a reader is that you can pick it up, and I think you know, one chapter I feels like can tell a story on its own, and it's very feels very kind of I feel like episodic in that sense that you don't have necessarily have to read it. I think from you know A to B or uh, you know start to end, and you can pick it up. I think you know at different points if you want to get into different you know aspects of Federer's career because. You know, there are so many. And, you know, I think what was interesting you picked up on is that, you know, Roger Federer is such a, a global icon. And I think, you know, where you start the book in kind of South America and those ex- exhibition events, you know, in Argentina. And it was fascinating to read about the kind of the hysteria that, um, hysteria even that, um, you know, Roger Federer causes, particularly, I think, with people outside um, of the realms of tennis, with just kind of, locals and people who've never maybe even held up a racket before and you know, I just want to get kind of the, the fan perspective from you kind of when you're reading this kind of sorry when you were kind of researching this book is you know what, what what kind of characteristics and traits do you think that Roger Federer has or has built over time that makes him so global and so appealing I guess to an audience that exists outside of tennis? You know it's, that's a great question uh, a lot of the book tries to deal with that uh, and I think it's a multi-pronged answer. I think in a lot of ways, I have a lot of faith in tennis fans. I think they get a long look at their players that they follow. The sport, you are really exposed in a way. I mean, in some ways you're protected because you have a big wall of handlers around and you can hide behind your social media and not do a whole lot of interviews or, or real true interaction. But you are on camera for hours upon end under pressure for years. And people who follow the sport closely will look into your eyes and look into your soul, really, over time. It's really hard to uh, to fake it mm. for 20 years <laughs> if you're not what you appear to be. You know, it's, it's just not – I don't think it's doable in terms of the character that you have anyway. And I think that's one of the great things about tennis is it really creates these deep connections between fans and their players they follow because they have that ability to really get a long look at them. You know, they're not wearing a helmet. Mm. They've been wearing masks lately, but that was that's new but they basically are, are there to be scrutinized. And I think Roger has really borne the scrutiny very well. Uh, it's, it's, that's been one of his more impressive uh, performances and one of his more impressive achievements that he's managed to wear very well. Obviously, a lot of Nadal fans and Djokovic fans who might disagree with that. But um, I feel like having been around him and watched him in so many different contexts and so many different microcosms, I think he's somebody who, uh, who really knows how to adapt and knows how to uh, empathize with people talk a lot about empathy in the book. And I think that's really important. Andy Roddick talks about Roger's uh, social skills, his um, social intelligence, emotional intelligence. And I think that's really an important part of him. But as far as the connecting with the fans, I think one, let's face it, the guy's game, you know, the subtitle isn't there for nothing in the U S it's the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer. And it's a beautiful game. I mean, it's a cliche at this point, but it's true. And so somebody who might just be a casual once a, Every year or two, watcher of tennis will turn on the TV and in the early years of Federer and go, wow, that guy just looks smooth, looks good. It's got a finish on the shots. It's all, it's all just it's elegant. And that's, that's the base of it. The second part of it is the durability and the longevity. So a lot of time to connect with people. Third part is he's multilingual. Um, and sometimes in the past, some great tennis players like Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras have not been that. They had plenty of following around the world, but they didn't really connect um, beyond their culture as much as they could have because they couldn't communicate in the, in the language of the culture. And Roger speaks you know, German and French as well as English. He speaks English very well. That was his first language. So he really, I think he's very comfortable in that. And a lot of European players over the years have not been as comfortable as he is. So that's, those are all factors. And the last thing I think is very important is his ability to show vulnerability to the public, to show his human side, which I think is very real. And I think that comes out, you know, after his matches, but also because the guy, as I pointed out in the book, and I think you have noticed this as well, he's been a great champion and a big winner, but he's also been a big loser. I mm. mean, he's lost a lot of brutally close, important matches. You could argue that I make this point in the book that, you know, his two best, greatest matches, he lost them both. The 2008 final at Wimbledon to Nadal and the 2019 Wimbledon final to Djokovic. And that's, you know, for a great champion, that's a lot of vulnerability. And I think people 
even though he has been in the spotlight a long time and was a superstar and made a billion dollars, I think people find him very relatable. And I think that's part of the reason is they've seen him suffer, quite frankly, these defeats and these setbacks. It's interesting. You you talk about, as you said, you talk about the fact that he is a big winner, but also a, a big loser. And it feels like those those results he maybe needed to, yeah, have that vulnerability to have that, you know, extra connection with the crowd. But you think, you know, going back to his kind of formative years, it's it's quite interesting to read how different he was, I think, back back then to, you know, the sort of cool, calm, sophisticated kind of character I feel like we sort of uh, envisage as, as Roger Federer now. But back in the day, he was a lot more emotional, was prone to a point penalty or, uh, you know, a racket, a racket smash. And I guess, you know, o- over the years that you've kind of had experiences with him in all those various different contexts, how have you kind of seen that change in terms of, you know, his, that I guess that rawness that maybe he had at the beginning and how he has transitioned over time? Look, I'm in my mid-50s now. I can tell you I've changed a lot since my teenage years. I'm sure most of, <laughs> it, most of us have. Um, but he's in the spotlight. And I would say, you know, the interesting, the progression, the most dramatic progression has probably not been in his personality off court. Um, we'll talk about that. But that's, I think the dramatic progression has been in his ability to control himself on court and the image that he projects on court, as you said, that very cool, uh, smooth, Bondian sort of uh, approach to playing tennis. No sweat tennis is how I like to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a bit more <laughs> of the sweat lately, but you're right. Exactly. That's it. And I think that has been an acquired trait. I mean, he's always been an elegant, had to be an elegant athlete, naturally graceful in his movements, played a lot of sports as a youth. So he had a lot of, you know, multilateral kind of training there in terms of his ability to process information in sports terms. But he's a guy who, uh, who really battled himself. And I think that's been the most interesting part of the book for me to research and write about was that 1998 uh, to 2003 phase, those five years where he really, things were kind of uh, hanging in the balance there. It could have gone a different direction. And he he did struggle with his behavior. He was once, uh, you know, once uh, fined for not trying, you know, lack of effort in a tournament. And he uh, threw his racket a lot, swore a lot, you know, did damage. But above all, he's, he was self-loathing and he berated himself a lot. It was, it was always that sort of thing. It was, you know, what a lot of players like Andy Murray does that too. It's just a uh, negativity he's never quite gotten rid of. And I think Roger did manage to get rid of it. And it was a very intentional process. He got a lot of help, sports psychologists and uh, a sports psychologist, I should say, and um, his coaches. And above all, it had to come from him. And we talked about that at one, one point in one of our interviews. And he said, basically, I was looking at myself on the TV and watching the highlights. I think it was me and Marat Safin. I'd have been a match against Scolari. Uh, maybe in Hamburg back uh, before he won uh, Wimbledon in 2003. And he just ultimately didn't like the image he was projecting. He felt like it wasn't what he wanted to show the world as he became more and more prominent on the show courts of the world. And he decided having made already a lot of progress that he was going to shut that down and, and develop a much more uh, self-contained and controlled demeanor on the court. And of course there've been some outbursts over time on occasion, but I think he has generally kept a lid on it and managed to uh, play his best tennis with that style of a of on-court persona, which is, a, you think about it, pretty tough. I mean, it's not his natural way. And he's fought himself and managed to suppress that. Mm. And you talk about kind of influences on him, particularly at that, I guess, that critical period, very much earlier on in his career. And again, you kind of go into the book about one of his his biggest influences uh, was, his, I think, his first coach, um, the Australian Peter Carter, who uh, I think tragically died in a, in a car accident. Again, this was a story I had not really much kind of insight on. And um, it was really interesting to to kind of hear hear about that and all the different, I think, sorts of influences and, and role models that had on Federer's career, particularly in that sort of transformative period early on. What was your kind of Im- impression of, of Peter Carter? Do you think he was kind of the biggest kind of impact on, on Federer in terms of crafting the, the image of, of him that we have today? Or, or were there other factors as well? First of all, I think it's interesting to hear you talk about this because uh, I think for people who followed Roger from the early years who were already adults at that time, you know, the Peter Carter component of his story was pretty well known and, and pretty uh, focused on a lot in those early, very early years when he was first succeeding. He talked about it a lot, too, because Peter Carter died in 2002 in a, a vehicular accident in um, South Africa on safari. 
But I find it interesting that you, as a younger person, I've had a number of conversations in the last week about about this, about Peter Carter. And, and I, I'm happy because I feel like people your age don't really know about this part of it. And I feel like that's because Roger's been around so long. I think people that are, you know, have been established with them all the way through take it for granted. And I think it, to me, it was important to go back into it and try to find some new things that I didn't know and try to make more sense of it. But I'm, I'm finding that people didn't really know the story at all. So I feel like that's uh, maybe the book does that service for your generation, which is good. Um, for sure, Peter Carter, who was an Australian player from Adelaide, coached by Peter Smith, who coached so many great players, including Leighton Hewitt. Uh, he was a guy who had a beautiful game himself, just lacked that power and pop that Roger has in his and, you know, maybe other things too, but he was a game that was quite similar in some ways to Roger's and he helped Roger shape his game into an attacking weapon, but also was very focused from what I heard. And I never got to interview Peter Carter. I just saw him from afar when I was, because he died so young and um, he worked very hard from everything I've heard and all the interviews that I've done on Roger's uh, technique the details of his game was very, very uh, interested in trying to really polish his shots. He definitely encouraged him to keep the one-hander and really, even though they were critics of it and it wasn't his strongest shot as a youth. And he really saw the potential for him to use the whole canvas of the tennis court. And his death in 2002 came after Roger had chosen a different coach to go on the circuit with. That was Peter Lundgren. And he chose Peter Lundgren because Peter had been a high-level pro player not a champion, of course, but a high-level pro player, part of that great Swedish generation that followed Bjorn Borg, guys like Mats Volander and Edberg, people like that, Mikael Pernforce. And Lundgren was somebody who had that experience on the circuit, so Roger felt that he had a little bit of an edge on Peter Carter and could help him navigate the waters a bit better. But it was a very hard decision. And so I think Roger had some guilt about that. And so when Peter Carter had been named the Swiss Davis Cup captain, and Roger was positioning Peter Carter to help him out down the road more and more, and then got married, honeymoon, died in a tragic accident, freak accident down in South Africa. And that was brutal for Roger. He was 21 years old. Losing somebody you care about deeply, one of your real touchstones and mentors of that age is really, really powerful. And I think it changed uh, Roger's path. He was hovering between very good and great at that point. It wasn't clear which way he was going to go. And I think Rod, uh, Roger really realized after Peter's death that he wanted to honor his legacy uh, that might sound like it's Hollywood, but I think it's really true. I mean, I got Peter Smith, Peter Carter's coach, sent me some uh, messages that Roger had sent him after Peter Carter's death saying, I want you to know I think about him when I play and I'm committed to honoring his legacy and I want to do all I can to be the player he thought I could be. And that's it's very moving. And Roger's a very uh, emotional guy. And I think he really took it to heart. And I think it's motivated him and inspired him for a lot of his career. I mean, moving on to the period I feel like I, I grew up with Roger Federer with was I feel like a period that came not not too long after which was him it what it felt like as a fan sort of mopping up Grand Slam after Grand Slam after Grand Slam before that sort of big three period with Novak Djokovic and, and kind of Rafael Nadal kind of set in when I personally kind of reflect on that that period of time when he was it felt just kind of winning every single Grand Slam you know available there was a part of me I was wondering is is this actually good for the game was it like a bit boring for for fans the fact that he was just absolutely winning everything and I wasn't really thinking about it in terms of are we actually seeing greatness personified on on a tennis court and I was interesting again to kind of read the book and kind of get the perspective in terms of that period of the game where we didn't really have a lot of big characters I feel on on the tour yes yes there were there were some but it wasn't like it wasn't like there was a big three there wasn't something we could kind of collectively I feel hang our hat on and it was all it just all felt like the the Roger Federer show it's interesting yeah that was one of the revelations for me in going back and and thinking this all through because obviously I'm processing a lot of things and sort of in the moment writing daily newspaper stories for so many years I think and I make this point in the book what's interesting to me is that our recollection of Roger's dominance, if you really break it down, did not last as long <laughs> as we thought it did. <laughs> and in terms of how we experienced it at the time, I mean, yes, he had an incredible 2004. That was really his window to win the French Open at that point early in his career, mm -hmm. maybe even yep. Grand Slam. Um, he didn't do it then. He won three of the four that year, and he was by far the dominant player. But Rafa really emerged as a team prodigy whereas Roger took a little bit more time. So there's a five-year gap between them, but because of Rafa's precocity, 
he came along pretty early in Roger's timeline. So Roger really only had a couple of seasons, if you want to stretch it, of really kind of unfettered Roger, the dominant king, no worries, you know, love me, please. <laughs> it was it was more or not not even please just just love me because i'm so lovable that was his window to advertise himself wasn't it i mean he, he was he was great and it was obvious and it was it was a, definitely a change uh, in the game and he emerged from a bunch of guys before that where it wasn't so clear that period i was talking about that 98 to 2003 period where you had guys like leighton hewitt mm. and Roddick emerging you had juan carlos ferrero and marat Safford. these were talented players all number one players at one time or another and they could have been the guy but Roger put it all together, and then he had too much for all of them. But then Rafa emerges, and Rafa probably would have won the French Open in 2004 if he hadn't been hurt. But he didn't play it, so he plays it for the first time in 05, and he wins it. And Roger is beaten by not Rafa in the semifinals in that year, which was a surprise maybe to people at the time because Roger was the guy, but now we look back and go, well, of course he won. And I think really, even though Roger won five straight U.S. Opens at that time and all the Wimbledons that he won, the fact that Rafa could take him out on clay and also threaten him on hard courts. Remember, Rafa beat him in his first match they ever played. It was on a hard court in Miami. I talk about that in the book a lot. It was a great match to kind of dissect now. So Roger was was vulnerable to Rafa from the start, really. And that was 04 when he beat him. And then the 05 French Open was already the start of Rafa, as we know him, the clay court king. So Roger really wasn't just running roughshod over the game for that long. He had moments on grass, obviously, in hard courts. And then, and then Rafa was by, you know, 2006, the following year, he was in the Wimbledon final. And definitely already into Roger's domain. So I think another the reason it's been so much fun to follow this is because Roger didn't really rule for that long over everything. He was number one, deservedly so. But he already had uh, kryptonite in his life. And I think um, that's what made him also human and vulnerable and made that rivalry so fascinating. And then Novak emerged and then, Got even more multi-pronged, and then you had uh, Andy Murray for quite a long time as well. So that's been the great thing about it all is that Rogers had to, for all his elegance and amazing talent, has had to really you know scrap and scuffle around to try to keep relevant, and he's managed to, but it's been hard. It's fascinating because, as you said, we go. I think we all going back to that vulnerability he has that makes him so endearing to tennis crowds, non-tennis crowds, whatever, and. The players like Djokovic, Murray, Nadal are up there in terms of being able, I guess, to kind of exploit those kind of vulnerabilities. And I think when we kind of move into that big kind of three era, big four era, I think it's fascinating to read about the fact that I think what Federer realised and what those kind of three guys realised was they weren't able to keep still. They always felt like they needed to kind of improve and adapt um, because if they did stay still, they were just going to get left behind. And, you know, just talking about kind of Federer's kind of legacy in relation to, you know, some of the other kind of all-time greats in terms of like Djokovic and Nadal, how would you compare compare them in terms of, you know, what impact do you think Djokovic and kind of Nadal had in terms of shaping Federer's legacy? Because if they hadn't existed, who knows? We may have just had a era of, of Federer dominance for, for a lot longer. Well, you can see it in the women's game. I mean... Obviously, Serena Williams has had her ups and downs, but 23 Grand Slam singles titles, really nobody in her era is close, not even close. So that's what it could have looked like on the men's side, for sure. And Roger, being such a great clay court player, having grown up on clay, would have been a multiple French Open champion as well. I think he would have won in those years if Rafa hadn't existed. He would have won several times. And would have won more Wimbledons too, because nobody was going to take him out until Rafa came along. So that's that's all the what if game. He might not have lasted as long because it wouldn't have been as interesting. He might have moved on. Yeah, you know, it got interesting very quickly, and it stayed interesting. <laughs> it is interesting at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It stayed that way for. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. I mean, it's just been nonstop interesting all the way through for those close to it and those from afar. But I think they have all shaped each other's legacies. They've all had the impact. They've all driven. And it's, it's a cliche to say, well, you, you have to you can't stand still. you got to keep getting better. It's kind of like one match at a time. But it's true in this case. And there have been players over the years who probably have sort of stood still and haven't really progressed that much because they didn't have to. These guys all had to because of the other ones existed. And I think they took great pride in their ability to find that little new thing that might make a difference in the edge. Roger switching his racket size finally, which took him a while to do. And Novak solving his problems with his allergies and the gluten-free diets and becoming a physical 
Monster able to last five sets when that was really in doubt early on. Nadal having to deal with um, faster surfaces, which his game probably would not, was not ideally designed to deal with, and solving those issues and finding ways to shorten points and moving closer to the baseline, except for when he's returning serve from Timbuktu. And, you know, basically, I think they've all had to make these adaptations. And um, I've really enjoyed watching them try as an outsider, objective observer, and I think um, they've also changed the game in terms of this, the level of professionalism around the clock they all bring to it. I mean, Yvonne Lendl did that back in the day, for sure. He was the first one to really bring that quality, and Navratilova did it as well on the women's side. But these guys have taken it to a new level with their very focused training and their, and their periodic uh, training and their careful scheduling and the teams that they bring to bear. And who knows what they're using off the court that we don't know about. And also the use of analytics and the use of statistics over time has become more important for all of them, maybe a little bit less so for Rafa. But, I mean, it's um, it's a whole package, and it's been quite a package to chronicle day by day and, and a challenge to chronicle it in a big book. But I think uh, really enjoyed the process of finding out things that I didn't know. just talking about right kind of right now you just kind of touched on Novak Djokovic really bringing kind of the you know the an absolute kind of physical specimen and and bringing that element kind of to his game and you know if we talk about kind of Roger Federer at the moment you know knee surgeries not playing a game this year it feels very much like this book has come out a moment where we can whisper it look back on his career it doesn't feel like at the moment he's going to be adding to his legacy sadly anymore with for example more grand slam kind of titles where do you kind of stand with the the Roger Federer kind of story at the moment do you think we are sort of reaching reaching the end and and does that help the book I think maybe kind of contextualize how you know how his career has kind of transformed and almost looking back on it as his whole kind of career is as one yeah to be honest with you out of respect for Roger whom I have with whom I have a good professional relationship as a journalist Mm. he's not a friend he wouldn't call me a friend either, but he's somebody I have a, a connection <laughs> with. Out of respect for him, I wouldn't have wanted to write this book five years ago. I just don't think it wouldn't have felt right. Um, he had more, clearly more tennis at the highest level in him, a lot more. He wanted that higher level tennis. And I think it wouldn't have been the right tone. I mean, this book, when I wrote it, it had sort of a retrospective tone and a, and a summing up tone. He may come out and come back from his knee surgery and make a deep Jimmy Connors-esque run to the semifinals of the U.S. Open or deep run at Wimbledon again and get a much better send-off than he gave himself there at Wimbledon this year, losing the last set six love to Hubie Hercatch, who's a fine player but mm. not yet a, a true champion. So I know he wouldn't like it to end that way, but you don't get to always pick it, you know what I mean? Mm. So I felt like writing this book at this point was even before what's just happened with him announcing the new knee surgery and uh, another break from the game. I felt with his 40th birthday coming – and just the situation as it was developing in the men's game with the young players coming up, the sets of passes and the Zverevs and the, uh, and the Medvedevs, that it was the right time to do this. And I know he's going to do his own autobiography at some point. So when he does that, I'm, obviously that I'll, I'll be up there reading that as well. And I'm sure we'll <laughs> have lots to share and, and lots to learn from that. So I thought as an outsider biography, this was the right time. And um, I feel like I think his main body of work is really done. And I felt, he really had a shot maybe this year at Wimbledon to go all the way to the final. I just felt like the way that was setting up for him with people who were left, he had a really good chance there. And obviously he just wasn't right physically. Um, you don't always know that in real time and he will never retire from a match. He never has. So I think he'll, he'll be out there on crutches hitting, you know, forehands before he'll retire. And so I think uh, he was clearly not in, not in great shape in that, in that match. So hard to judge it from that, but I, but I feel like uh, it's the right time. For me, that is one of the most amazing stats. Uh, yes, he's won all these Grand Slam titles. Zero mid-match retirements in his career, which is an astounding feat. And again, just kind of talking about that in relation to fans, is it's one of those stats I, I feel like we take we don't even, don't appreciate enough because it's like saying if Roger Federer is on court, you're gonna you're gonna have a good time because as a fan, you get to you know watch this guy watch this guy at work, and he's he's one of the greatest and. It's it's fascinating that he's having 
you know, I think age, obviously age has you know, something to do with it. But up to this point, he's relatively been injury free. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see how he has made his game look so effortless and his technique is so compact. And, you know, we're seeing injuries at the moment to other players like, you know, Dominic Team, for example. And it's, it's amazing that his effortlessness, I feel like, has really kind of helped his, his longevity. And I think also kind of added to his legacy than the fact that he's not necess- he's had to obviously look after his body, but you wouldn't say he's one of the most physically imposing players on the tour. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I imagine you've been up close to him in your times traveling around. He's actually he's a more powerfully built guy than you realize. He, I think he's, he's pretty small bone. I mean, his wrists are not mm. very big around when you sit next to him. He's got kind of a small arm, but his lower body is powerful, big legs and and strong that way. And so he's got a big platform. And he's six foot two or six foot one. So, I mean, he's, he's not without stature, but you're right. It's not like he's some, um, <laughs> you know, massive muscled behemoth and not as on your screen as Nadal for sure, even though they're the same height probably. But yeah, I mean, I feel like, I don't think he really likes the term effortless. I think it's a logical thing to look at him and say that makes sense because that's the way he plays so fluidly. But I, I think one of the themes of the book is it's been a hell of a lot harder than it looks. And, um, he really has had to fight back problems through his career. He's won Wimbledon at least once, really hurting, basically not practicing and, and going through the, the draw and, and winning early in his in his run there. And he's gritted his teeth through a lot of matches where he just didn't let on that he was not not doing his best and he was having trouble physically. And I think the other players respect that about him, that he's not going to come up with excuses or or bail on the match. And I talked to Roddick at, at considerable length for this book, Andy Roddick, and he was great. Really one of the highlights for me of the reporting process was getting a chance to go back with him and talk about his rivalry with Roger and just talk about Roger in general. And that stat you talk about with uh, no retirements, I mean, Andy just sort of, as he would, got very animated. He's like, that is insane. I mean, insane, <laughs> insane. He just wouldn't stop. And I, I can see why. I mean, and in a way, who are you trying to impress? It's great to impress the fans, but trying to impress your peers you know, if other journalists like my book, I'm I'm even even more proud of it because I feel like <laughs> you know people are really respecting the work and they know what goes into it. So that's that's kind of the audience and the players with Roger. That stat obviously gets them, and the fact that he hits shots or conjures shots, others just can't conjure. So it, and you talk to players and coaches, they just go, people you know, are still watching the guy going, how the hell, you know, and that's. That's a great compliment that your own peer group can look at you and say, wow. And they still do. It's funny because the, you know, the way you kind of speak about him, it's, you know, it's, it's made me realize, I feel like as a fan, we, we sort of, and maybe players as well, we sort of have taken him for granted because of the, of the things he, you know, he's able to do on the court. The fact that, you know, he has zero mid-match retirements, we just sort of expect him to be here there. And I think that's maybe what makes it a little bit kind of sad at the moment is, is this sort of realization that actually, you know, in the future, he's he's not going to be there. I mean, this season, he hasn't really been there. Yes, he was at, at Wimbledon for a little bit. Uh, he played Haller, uh, you know, some other tournaments as well. But um, yeah, it's a bit, it's sort of tinged, I feel like, with a bit of, of sadness in the sense that, yes, we can look back and, and celebrate on, on his career. But at the same time, the fact that he's not going to be around forever, I feel like that is, you know, really kind of hit home this season, particularly with, you know, what's happened as well, I think, to to Rafa and, and his season, you know, Serena as well. It feels like right now, sadly, time is time is catching up. Yeah, this is the first U.S. Open uh, since 1996, 25 years, quarter century, that you haven't had at least one of these guys, Rafa, mm. Roger, or Williams sisters. They're all out. So that I don't know if it's the end of an era, but it's very close to the end of an era. <laughs> very <laughs> And um, just uh, talking about kind of because you bring in a lot of your kind of own personal kind of perspectives into the book. We can't obviously go through absolutely every single interview you've had with with Roger Federer uh, today, but kind of you just give us one one situation where uh, you were interviewed with with Roger Federer that kind of sticks out for you in your memory. Hey, it's a quick question. I'd be curious of your response. Did that work for you? Did you like the fact that I was mixing a little bit of uh, my own experience and, and perspective? Yes, definitely. It was, it's fascinating to read. I love the situations. It's not really an insight 
you get when you kind of read i guess an art you know an article on a page so i always kind of like that behind the scenes you know element and i always imagine it can be at any any time any place you know you're at the beck and call of a player and i feel like it therefore could lead to lots of interesting situations yeah i would say for me the most you know sort of kind of i'm here feeling wow was on the private plane going from uh Indian Wells in the desert up to Chicago. Wow. That was to do a report on uh, his business interests and the Labor Cup. You know, the New York Times thought about it long and hard and decided it was worth doing. So we did it. And it was an invitation I've only received once in my career from anybody and decided to go. So being on that plane with him and seeing that kind of inside peak was extraordinary. You know, I can't say the interview was the best we ever did by any means. On the you know, We didn't really talk on the record on the plane. It was more just observing that environment and then interviewed at some point during the day as he went to Chicago. But mm-hmm. I felt like, um, to me, really, the interview that I think will stick with me, there are two of them. One was the one I opened the book with, when he referred to already in South America, in the car and that kind of rock star moment. You know, Roger is uh, Robert Plant, the Led Zeppelin moment, if you will. Mm. Um, and to me, I was like, well, this must happen to you all the time. And, and he was like, no, this is really, really cool. This doesn't happen to me all the time. And he's staring out the window and people are pressing against the car and chasing him down and cars on the highway. And it was just kind of that, that madness. But you think about it, he's Swiss people in Switzerland, you know, barely bat an eye when he walks in the room on purpose, it's a whole different vibe. And in tennis tournaments, he's kind of protected. He's sort of uh, away from that. And he's in sort of places where you know, bigger cities. And so to kind of tap into that South American exuberance and the novelty of Roger being in these places he hadn't been, I think he got a huge charge out of that. And I think that was something interesting to see from up close. I felt like I was experiencing him experiencing that for the first times. And that was very uh, telling. And also it gave me a sense of how long he might play because you could tell, you could tell he was still loving the, the road and the experience. And he gets that from his dad. His dad loves to travel, never gets tired of it. And um, I think uh, that's kind of why Roger even exists on the earth is because his dad had wanderlust and wanted to go down to South Africa to work and left Switzerland. So it's in the, it's in the blood there and you can just feel it. So that was a very cool interview. And the other one was, kind of our last big interview that we did before I wrote the book. And that was um, 2019 in Switzerland where he was training in the Alps near his home up there near Lenzerheide and kind of beautiful Alpine scenery up there. And he's playing in a little club uh, next to the Rhine river and uh, on clay and his own little court named after him there. Only a few courts, I think there were three or four courts there. And we went to lunch afterward. I spent the whole day there. And we just got in his car and drove to lunch in this little Alpine restaurant and walked in and everybody's heads, like I said, turned and nobody got up and did anything. It was, they just, they knew it was Roger Federer, but they weren't going to embarrass him or bother him. So we went back in the back corner table and talked for a couple hours. And it was a very wide ranging conversation. And it was just sort of the culmination for me of all the interactions Mm -hmm. we had through the years. It was a very uh, easy vibe, asked a lot of questions I've been wanting to ask for a long time and he answered them and, and that part of the book, which is near the end, I think is uh, was a lot of fun to re-explore and, and to write about. It was fascinating to read, yeah, all the different, I guess, situations that you kind of bring in your kind of your own personal experience into the book. I think that's what makes it so illuminating to actually have someone write who is able to get, you know, up close and personal with Roger Federer, one of the, you know, the biggest stars, you know, on the planet is what makes it so fascinating. We've got a few final questions before we finish. We've got a, a listener question uh, from at Clive Tennis. So his question is, why is the cover of the book different on the uk edition and it's a question i've been thinking about myself and i was looking at because the 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 uk edition the one the copy we've received is is federer sort of up close in a in a facial shot whereas the is the us edition it's more of him like on a court playing like full body yeah it's a great question i mean the content's essentially the same uh, in the books (laughs) never judge a book by its cover (laughs) yeah yeah you're 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 changing center to center re the british style (laughs) um you know, it's interesting. I think uh, there was a lot of debate, but the book is basically co-published by 12, mm. which is part of Hachette and John Murray in the, in the UK. And um, they both just made different decisions about their audiences, what they were looking for. They both have obviously good art design departments and the book was going to get released at the same time in both countries. And the John Murray edition has a lot of global reach because they have uh, Australia, New Zealand and India and places like that. So I imagine the cover that of Roger in profile, which is kind of more of an introspective, if you're an American, kind of a Lincoln-esque sort of profile. 
uh, is going to be the one that uh, will get the most uh, exposure around the world, I would say. But the one in the U.S., I mean, it's the U.S. Open to begin with, right? And the cover and the, and the colors and the night right, session right. or whatever it was, and and it's action. So I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some kind of deeper meaning to the fact that the American team shows the action shot and the the U.K. team shows a more reflective shot. I don't know. Maybe it's a matter of perception of Roger or how it all is. But I like them both. I'm not just saying that. <laughs> and it's funny. I've had I asked my family. I have three daughters, and I asked them, and it was really a split kind of reaction. Oh, I love the UK one. I like that one. So, but it can be a little confusing, but just tell your readers that if you buy one, you got the book. So okay. Don't, don't, don't Please buy one. And uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. We did have another question come in from David on email. Nothing to do with, with the book, but they've asked, do you think Novak Djokovic is going to complete the calendar year Grand Slam in New York at the US Open? Well, part of the reason that I had delayed our interview here today and our our conversation was that I was working on a column off the draw at the U.S. Open <laughs> about that sort of very topic. So it's kind of fresh in, in the mind anyway. Look, Novak has proven himself as the ultimate, I call him today, the ultimate long-form player mm-hmm. and ultimate uh, closer in tennis. I think of men's and women's included at the moment. And um, how can you question his ability to handle big pressure? He's done it so often. I mean, he's beaten Rafa twice at the French Open. Nobody else has done that. He's beaten Roger three times at Wimbledon, his best tournament. So it's uh, the guy's a killer. He really is. And right now, I think on paper, even though they're all tied to 20 Grand Slam tournaments and Roger has more uh, ultimate overall tournament victories than Novak, quite a few more, I personally would kind of lean toward Novak as, as the player of this era already at this stage. If he completes the Grand Slam, the true Grand Slam, the calendar year, baby, one that hasn't been done for over 50 years by a man, I think that sets him apart you know, pretty yeah. definitively. And I think his chances are are good. What, are they great? You know, I don't know. Last tournament of the year in the slam department, the Olympics was a disappointment for him. You could sense he was losing some steam there. The situation with Zverev was a bit of a surprise the way he handled that. And these young guys, think about it. Medvedev played him in the Aussie Open final. Got destroyed, but he played him. Um, Sissipas played him five sets. Maybe he should have beat him in the French Open final. Um, Zverev just, uh, you know, played him the Olympics and beat him in the three. And then, and then you got Berrettini, who played him pretty tough at the Wimbledon final. So all these young guys, you know, it's also a matter of kind of learning to swim in these waters. And these guys have done some pretty recent swimming. So if they play him again in New York, if Novak's not quite at his peak, I think he's, I think he's vulnerable. And those guys are hungry. You can feel it, and they're ready. They want to win. None of them have none of them has a slam, so I think it's going to be harder than we think. And and if it's not, you know, Novak uh, hats off, and and that's the expected. But I think we got to keep our eyes open for that home stretch in New York. Okay. Well, we'll we'll soon find out. Final question uh, from the passing shot. It's a question that we ask all of our guests on the show. Uh, we are a British podcast, and T is a big topic uh, that myself and Kim talk about at Passing Shot HQ. Question we ask all our guests is, what's your, what are your views on tea? How do you take your tea? Are you more of a coffee guy? Uh, what's your go-to brew? Well, until I was 50 years old, I didn't drink coffee. But I sort of figured that that's a good time to sort of get a boost in life, right? Kind of a little more. <laughs> I kept reading all these, it's good for your health and good for your brain mm-hmm. things. And I said, you know, I could use a little boost of the brain. So I started drinking it then. So I'm, I'm more of a coffee guy now, but okay. over the arc of my life, you know, much more a tea guy. And, and uh, I've had some great memories visiting tea plantations in Sri Lanka and Malaysia. So I kind of have this visual uh, sensory connection to, uh, to tea as well. Is it more of a green tea or a uh, or purple tea or? You know, I'm a breakfast tea guy, okay. kind of that real gray kind of style. And I like, yep. uh, I like my, Love I like it. my mint tea to close the day. Oh, fair enough. Yep. That's, uh, I'm sure I know Kim will be nodding uh, in approval um, at that comment. So, uh, yeah, it's good to know. Right. Let's wrap up this episode of the book club. Chris, it's been great having you on. Um, for any of our listeners who are interested in purchasing the master, the brilliant career of Roger Federer, can you let them know where they can do so? Well, of course, you can get it on Amazon in the UK or other places that the book is available. Mm-hmm. And in the US where it's, you know, I've been really, really gratified by how well it's doing. It's Broke into the top 100 this week on Amazon among all books and is number one in tennis and uh, sports history and sports biography. So that's that's been really uh, reaffirming and, and great. 
But you can also do what I think is the greatest thing to do, which is go to your local bookseller. Those places we need to support them and preserve them. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's one in your town or close to your town. And I would urge you to order your book if you can. And you have the wherewithal to do that to order it from the, those establishments. And listeners, we'll put a link uh, in the description uh, to make sure if you want to purchase The Master of the Brilliant Career of Roger Federer, you'll be able to do so. Just look in our show notes for the episode. Um, and finally, uh, Chris, obviously you're very active on, on social media, on Twitter. If listeners want to follow you, uh, where can they do so? Well, my name is too long for a regular Twitter handle. Christopher Clary kind of gets a little long-winded, so I go with <laughs> at Christoph Clary, P-H at the end, Clary. It's all one word. And I'm on Twitter and I'm very engaged with uh, people who follow me and I, I urge you to join and join along. It's, and uh, I really enjoy talking to tennis people and, and people who really you know, love and understand the sport. So this has been a pleasure today. Thank you. No worries. Yes, honestly, it's one of our favorite accounts to follow at Passing Shot HQ. It's always got lots of good facts um, and insight as we kind of come into the US Open. But listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this latest episode of the book club. Remember to subscribe to the Passing Shot to stay up to date on all the action coming up at the US Open. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, CastBox, Stitcher. And if you want to show your support for the show, then make sure to leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts. And with the US Open coming up, make sure to also follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at PassingShotPod. You can also email the show, PassingShotPod at gmail.com, or you can check out our website, www.thepassingshot.co.uk. We will be back with our round-by-round coverage of the US Open starting next Wednesday, uh, sorry, next Tuesday, actually, uh, for round one. So I hope you can join us for that. Christopher, once again, thanks so much for coming on to talk about your new book, The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. It was really insightful and really interesting to get your perspective and talk about those kind of vulnerabilities, I think, that is what makes you know Roger Federer so, I guess, universally appreciated amongst you know, everyone. Um, but yeah, really, really uh, fantastic for you to come on. Thank you for inviting me. It was really a pleasure. No problem. And uh, listeners, we will be back with our US Open coverage, starting with our round by rounds next Tuesday. So I hope you can join us for that. And we will see you again soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.